The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Elizabeth Henderson. She is an award-winning farmer, educator, writer, activist, and agrarian leader who is best known for her decades of support of and contributions to organic and sustainable agriculture. She has been a pioneer of the CSA model in the United States and is committed to resisting the many injustices of a cheap food system through the power of cooperation. She's the author of Sharing the Harvest, a citizen's guide to community-supported agriculture and a core leader behind the Agricultural Justice Project and its Food Justice Certification label, which will largely be the focus of our conversation today. Elizabeth Henderson is also a founding member of the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New York, better known as NOFA, and she represents the NOFA Interstate Council on the board of the Agricultural Justice Project. Prior to farming, she was a professor of Russian literature and culture and an instructor in the university's prison education program. Through the program, Elizabeth Henderson taught inmates at Norfolk, a correctional institution in the Boston area. Her values include cooperation, justice, appreciation of beauty, reverence for life, and humility about the place of human beings in the scheme of nature. Ten boxes of her papers representing her large body of work are housed at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in their special collections and archives. The Elizabeth Henderson Papers documents her activities in both the organic and sustainable farming movements, as well as prison education and the American independent movement. I'll provide a link to that site, as well as her excellent interview with Dave Chapman of The Real Organic Project. Welcome, Liz. Well, thank you for the really overwhelming introduction. Well, your life is rich with decades of work towards justice. I am curious to know, however, how you came to farming. It's my understanding that you did not grow up on a farm. Where did that appreciation for life on the land come from? Well, my parents were city people. They lived all their lives in New York City. And somehow, when I was a baby, they decided that they would move to the country to raise me in a healthier environment. So when I was five, we moved to Croton on the Hudson, New York. They never gardened. My father never mowed the lawn. Their connection with nature was playing tennis. But they sent me to modern dance lessons. And I discovered Isadora Duncan and her approach to natural movement. And what I learned from my parents about social justice my father actually read through Marx's Capital with me when I was a teenager, and we discussed the meaning of Das Kapital. And between Isadora Duncan and Marx, when I had a crisis in my life, my husband was killed in a car crash, and I just needed to 
find a different way to live, I decided to recapture what I had discovered when I was a teenager and my parents sent me away to summer camp because I was so miserable. And all my girlfriends had started smoking and become cheerleaders. So they sent me to the Putney Summer Work Camp where I discovered truly rural America and what it was like to work in a cow barn and raise crops and things like that. So that's what I turned to when I needed to really change my life. Well, you worked on three different farms, is that correct? Yes. But the longest amount of time, three decades, was on the Peacework Farm in New York. Right, yeah. And where did you become interested, or how did you become interested in community-supported agriculture specifically? Well, in becoming a farmer, I was very aware that the time was at the height of the farming crisis when many farms were going out of business. There were tractor caves to Washington, D.C., 1979. That was exactly when I was starting to farm. But I had been going to the Northeast Organic Farming Association conferences for several years and had really discovered that the people that I related to best were people in organic farming and gardening and homesteading. So when I decided to move to the country myself and discovered really that I loved doing the work, I was very aware that so many farms were going out of business. And if I was going to succeed, I had to find a way to avoid middlemen and sell directly to people. So I came to know Wally and Juanita Nelson, who lived in Deerfield. Juanita Nelson started the farmer's market in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and was just a tremendous influence in my life and learning how to live with as little money as possible and circulating as many nutrients as possible between the earth and our bodies and the community that we lived in. So when I heard from Robin Van N about the idea of community-supported agriculture, that made total sense to me. Robin and I met at NOFA conferences, and I read her publication, It's All About Vegetables, and I learned about her first attempt at doing a CSA. And I was already doing a lot of writing about the farming that I was learning how to do. So I offered to help Robin write a book about community-supported agriculture. And writing was really, really hard for Robin, and she had many distractions in her life. So as we started meeting every few months, each time I would take on another chapter of the book because I had written my chapter, but she hadn't gotten much done. And then she died of asthma and poverty. She had an asthma attack and owed money to the ambulance service in the hospital. So a friend offered to drive her to the hospital. And somehow in the course of that, with the, the lock on the car frozen, Robin passed away. Oh my. So 
that left me with the book, and there were no notes that we could find anywhere at that time. Later, we discovered a big stash of her stuff, but I really had to pretty much start from scratch based on discussions we'd had and the outline that we wrote together and our basic commitment to make CSA as open to as many different kinds of farming and farmers as possible, rather than sort of a biodynamic movement, private enterprise. But together we agreed that we didn't want the book to be that narrow. We wanted it to be open to other kinds of farmers. So that's how I got involved in writing the book and in doing community-supported agriculture. I moved to Rochester area, to Wayne County, New York, in 1988 to join Rose Valley Farm. And it was quite clear that we couldn't really make a living on direct sales using the farmer's markets that were available to us. The farmer's markets in Wayne County, if you sold $100 worth of stuff in the morning, you were doing really well. So the idea of starting community-supported agriculture seemed appealing when we connected with Alison Clark, who was the initiator of the politics of food in Rochester, and she helped us get that started. And CSA made sense because it was a way of creating a direct agreement with the people who are eating your food that could be fair to all parties. Exactly. Well, I wondered if, for our listeners who may not be aware or knowledgeable of the community-supported agriculture model, can you give us an overview of what a CSA is? Well, basically, a CSE is a farm creates like a subscription, a club of people who sign up to get whatever the farm has at regular intervals and to pay in advance for getting that food. So in the case of our farm, we offer 26 weeks of organic vegetables and herbs and some flowers. And the first year we started the season of 1988-89, no one had heard about that. And it was totally new to suggest to people that they should pay in advance of receiving food. But with the help of Alison Clark, we found people in Rochester, and it turned out they were the people who were the environmentalists, the peace activists, the progressive people who could understand the value of an organic farm and keeping local farms in business. And so they agreed to join us in an experiment. The CSA is basically that. It's an agreement between a farm and a group of people. And there's an enormous variety of different kinds of CSAs. Some of them go year-round. Some only last 10, 11 weeks. Some of them offer vegetables. Others are just spring greens or fall root crops. You can join a CSA and get alpaca, wool, and information about how to knit your own mittens and things like that. There's a huge range of CSAs, and the basic concept is just that direct agreement between the farmer and a group of eaters or consumers of what the farm produces. And then there is, on most CSAs, there is a requirement or a work requirement where people 
really gain a much greater understanding of just how difficult it is to produce food? Well, I've been all along encouraging farmers to ask more of the people who join their CSAs. Because the more people are involved in the farm, the more committed they become to the farm and the more they learn exactly what you said about the difficulty of keeping a farm going and the kind of work that has to be done in order to put food on people's tables. But farmers are reluctant to do that. In our CSA, everybody had to participate. You either did two or three sessions of work at the farm over the course of the season, plus two or three sessions helping with distribution, or you were a member of the core group that administered the CSA together with the farmers. And my farm partners and I brainstormed all the jobs that needed to be done and picked out the ones that we thought other people could do better than we could and really recruited members to do that. So it was members who did the newsletter. It was a member who got us started in having a website. He called me up and said, you need to have a website. And I said, why would I want the World Wide Web to sell local vegetables to local people? And he said, you need a website. And he drove out to the farm, brought me my first computer, taught me how to do email and how to use it. <laughs> And of course, he was totally right. So everybody participated. And that made for a very lively community of people. And after the second or third year, we shared our farm budget with the members of the core group. And they were astonished to see how little we, the farmers, were earning. And that there was no line in the budget for health insurance or a pension fund. So the members of the Corps actually had a long discussion about how much to raise the price for the shares so that there would be money for those things for their farmers. So getting a fair deal was very important to me, and it's what enabled me to make my living as a farmer, to live just from the farming, not to have an off-farm job, although I, in the wintertime I did other things, but my basic living was from the farm, and I through my salary year-round, as did my partners. And it led me to think a great deal about fairness in agriculture and how in our early days when we started organic, that was part of our vision. And it became part of the basic principles of organic agriculture of the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements, IFOM, the principles of health, ecology, care, and fairness. Fairness encompassing everybody, all the critters involved in the agriculture, from the creepy qualities in the soil to the animals and the people, all being treated in a way that was fair and allowed all of us to, to flourish and lead healthy lives. So that became the basis of the Agricultural Justice Project and our standards. Liz, let me take one break here and remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Elizabeth Henderson. She's an award-winning organic farmer, educator, prolific writer, 
activist and agrarian leader. She is best known for her decades of support of and contributions to organic and sustainable agriculture. She is a pioneer in the CSA model in the United States, and she is committed to resisting the many injustices of a cheap food system. We are going to dive into this issue of justice, and I want to let our listeners know that to learn more about justice in agriculture, I will provide a link to the Agricultural Justice Project, and there are many interviews with farmers, and you can learn more about what exactly this entails. But I do want to dive into the Agricultural Justice Project at this point. You've got a wonderful website. You've got a fabulous section called Hungry for Justice, where people can really understand more about what it means to see and live that injustice in our food system. But one of the statements that's made early on on the website is that farm workers are invisible. And of course, as you mentioned, they lack basic assurances like health insurance or some sort of retirement program. And I think that we are so busy focused on what food can do for me, individually speaking, we don't think about the people who are actively planting, harvesting, and bringing that food to market. So I'm glad you brought up the organic issue and how that piece, that social justice piece isn't in the organic definition. Why is that? Well, internationally, it is. In the United States, in the National Organic Program, that program was placed in the hands of the Department of Agriculture, which farmers refer to as the Department of Agribusiness, and they decided to put it in the marketing division. So as far as USDA is concerned, organic is a marketing scheme with a label and standards, and that's it. It has nothing to do with fair prices for the farmers, prices that allow those farmers to pay living wages to the people who work on their farm, the farmers and all the workers together. So that was just left out. And it is now an international initiative of home. Based on their last Organic World Congress, it was voted that an effort should be made to get social justice into organic standards all over the world. And the latest meeting of IFOM North America, Malik Yakini was the keynote speaker. And when asked by the board of IFOM North America what he thought the focus of IFOM North America should be, He said to work on these social justice issues. And he referred to the Agricultural Justice Project because he is familiar with and admires her work. Mm -hmm. How can farms be more fair to their workers? What are the key standards in addition to living wage and health insurance? What else is included? What makes a farm fair? Well, first of all, it's important to acknowledge how really difficult it is to improve the financial situation of farmers and farm workers. 90% of the farms across the country that are mid-sized and smaller in scale. Everything is stacked against us. 
But what can make things fairer is, first of all, making that one of your top priorities. The farms that do that, farms like Soul Fire Farm, Roxbury Farm, High Ranch, Swantonberry Farm, where how you treat all the people who work on the farm is as important in how you work towards soil health. Those farms are able to find things to make the relationship between the farmer and the people who work on the farm more fair. And that's acknowledging people's right to freedom of association. And that can be all the way from just workers feeling free to come to their manager and say, look, we think we should be paid an extra dollar an hour, or it's really slippery in the packing shed, and you could change that by buying new mats or whatever it is, all the way to the workers on the farm, as now is happening in New York State, the workers deciding to unionize. In addition, treating people with respect is one of the most powerful things that a farmer can do. And so much of the mythology that local farms create about themselves in order to attract customers is all about us wonderful farmers. But farms that also care about their workers will feature the people who work on their farms on their website as well and tell their stories. So those are just a few simple things that really don't cost any money. Living wages is expensive, but those other things don't cost anything. And on the Agricultural Justice Project website, we have a toolkit for farmers. And I've been gathering material for that toolkit for 20 years. Best examples either of employee handbooks or safety trainings, templates for simple things like just keeping track of the evaluations that you've done or the trainings that you've done. And I created this huge monster pile of stuff. And unfortunately, the Agricultural Justice Project hired John McGee, who has a background as a farmer and a farm manager, but is also really savvy in computer stuff. And he has put this all in order so that the toolkit can be searched by topic. And you can get the piece that you need in an easy way to adapt for your farm. A guide to how to create a health and safety training. Ideas about how to make that training as comprehensive as possible. Not just physical, but mental health. Things like that. That's mm-hmm. all in our really extensive and now very accessible toolkit. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about the website, the Agricultural Justice Project, and I'll provide a link to that. But it opened my eyes to all of the different levels of fairness. We spoke about several of them, but things like conflict resolution, you know, helping people work together better. What constitutes a disruptive action that would require dismissal? And what does that look like? And then what if there's a whistleblower who sees something wrong, but maybe is afraid to speak up because of retribution? So you've got a section on protections for whistleblowers. 
I think that's critical, Liz. Well, I think our standards for the Agricultural Justice Project for justice certification are so strong because they were hammered out by farmers and farm workers together. From the very beginning, one of the partners in the project has been CATA, the Farm Worker Support Committee, Comité de Apoyo a los Trabajadores Agrícolas, excuse me, Spanish. And the general coordinator at that time was Nelson Carrasquillo. All of the standards were discussed and contributed to by the farm worker members of the CATA board. And then we talked them over with the farmers who are on the AGP board and tried to work out what standards could be realistic and achievable in the United States now, despite all of the things that you and I have said about how hard it is, and things that farm workers recognize as necessary to make them feel that the farm work would be a good lifestyle for them. So that contribution, hearing the voices of the farm workers, is what makes our standards exceptional and really solid. Mm -hmm. I appreciated the Hungry for Justice section, Whose Voice is Missing, an Eater's Toolkit. So this toolkit and this website is not just for farmers who want to make their farms more socially just, but it's also for eaters who want to know what it's like on the ground for people working to put food on our table. So I greatly appreciate that. The website is simply agriculturaljusticeproject.org. Liz, I want to open the floor to you after your decades of work. Is there anything you want our listeners to know? Well, I want to make sure to say that it was Leah Cohen, who is the general coordinator for AJP, who is the brains and the heart behind that section of the website that is her work. And I want people to know that if we want to survive on this planet, now is the moment to transform the way we create our food. It has to be based on justice for the people who grow and pick and process and serve the food, all of the people, the workers, whether they have any education, wherever they come from in the world. That 50% of farm workers in this country who are undocumented must immediately be given legal documentation so that they can live in the sunshine and continue doing the important work that they're doing without which people wouldn't have food. This is the moment. This is part of mitigating climate change. It's transforming the way we're living. It will be much richer. People will be happier. We'll be concerned with one another and loving to one another, working in groups and having something to live for instead of worrying all the time about where the next dollar is coming from. Yeah. I want to thank you for your decades of work and certainly for being my guest today. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Elizabeth Henderson. She is an award-winning farmer, educator, writer, activist, and agrarian leader who is best known for her decades of support 
of and contributions to organic and sustainable agriculture. She's been a pioneer of the CSA model in the United States, and she is committed to resisting the many injustices of a cheap food system through the power of cooperation. Liz, thank you for carving out time for me today. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you for the beautiful words about me um, and my work. Of course. 